When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Did Fed Chair Powell just let the bond bears out? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Greg Weldon, the CEO of Weldon Financial. Hi, Greg. How you doing, Maggie? I'm doing okay. Doing okay. A uh, little tough to uh, watch the equity market today. I mean, we knew that there was a potential for Fed Chairman Jay Powell to make some news. Um, he testified in front of Congress and came out right away and warned that they may have to do more to try to bring down inflation. Does that mean a bigger rate hike in March? What are you expecting? Well, I don't necessarily think it means a bigger rate hike in March. If you listen to some of the sideline Fed comments, it's pretty much been, you know, we probably time to be a little bit more cautious. It's been a little bit of a yellow light flash and not quite. Powell has to, of course, carry the torch of vigilance on inflation. Powell hasn't said anything different. Powell has said the same thing continuously. I think what people with Jerome Powell is, he said what he's going to do and he did it. Even to the degree that he let inflation go above average and stay there with no range of tolerance and all the things he talked about in 2018 about getting inflation up, he did it. Exactly what he said. Let's let inflation run. And it ran. The pandemic caused it to run a little, maybe a little too hot even for the Fed and Powell. But Powell is a student of the 70s. Volcker is his hero. He has said this repeatedly since his very first Jackson Hole speech that we have the Volcker playbook. And I did a piece recently where we went back and looked at testimony, this testimony we have right now, Paul Volcker in 1978. Fascinating stuff. It's almost like back to the future type of thing, right? And Powell is, is playing from that playbook. He's using the same verbiage and it's pain. They're, gonna, they're basically saying, look, we, we can address a recession with rate cuts down the road. Thank God they've got ammo back. That's a really good thing that people don't talk about doesn't have to go right to QE. You can actually cut rates. But I think the degree to where you don't have disinflation and it makes it tough for Powell with inflation where it is, well, it drops if the base effect kicks in. Maybe it won't with energy. But where Powell doesn't see disinflation in the market. Difficult to say we're done tightening. We've beaten inflation when the stock market's almost at new highs and gold's almost at $2,000. And you know the dollar's been down since August. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's those conditions sort of moved against them for sure. We saw, and you're right, he, they've been, I mean, you know, if you sort of sift through the tea leaves, maybe a little bit the verbiage has been, I mean, but really it's, it is the same message that we are on this, you know, in this fight. Uh, but you saw the markets did react today. We saw this off in equities, but really the two-year Treasury yield now rose to 5%, highest since 2007. How are you feeling about bonds here? Well, see, good point on the two-year. The problem with that is the two-year Fed funds forward is still like below four and a half. 
Yeah. So you also have the dynamic around, they have said consistently and said again today, the last three paragraphs of a prepared testimony was everything he's been saying and probably as well as he said it this entire time, right? Verbatim, three paragraphs. And the end was, look, we have to be tighter and then be restrictive for a longer period of time, right? The market's not pricing in. The market is pricing we're going to get to the terminal rate and then we'll be lower in the future and pretty quickly, as, as quickly as the second half of next year, which is a bit of a shift because it had been the first half of next year when they would be easing already into a recession. So that's been pushed back to the second half, but I still don't think that's enough for the Fed to feel comfortable in taking their foot off the brake. They've also said repeatedly, it's more of an error here to stop too soon than to go too far. Yeah, so it sounds like, and we and we see the ten year hanging below four percent. I'm I'm pretty sure it, it closed there. So, do so? Do you think the bond, but that bond investors are mispricing the situation? Well, that's a good question and a hard one to answer. I don't think necessarily. Okay, because I think when you're looking at the bond market, it's pricing in the economic damage that's being done. So, to whatever degree, I actually have a flip scenario here, and it's kind of like the flip scenario when. The Fed was trying to get inflation for so long and they couldn't get it. And they used to use waiting for Godot. You're waiting for the guy that never shows up. Inflation was Godot. He never showed up. And then you know, the alternative ending in 2019 where Godot shows up. And that's what happened. Godot showed up. Inflation came. So in this case, it's almost like you look at the equity market. Does the pain come when bond yields actually kind of fall or at least at the short end? All right. Because in that case, real short interest rates will be rising even because you can have inflation falling faster. I mean, I think it could be a case where when you kind of have reached a point where you think the Fed might pivot, then some of the pain comes in the stock market. And people are kind of looking around like, this doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? And it's because you're understanding that credit is going to be harder to get. The mm. consumer is choking. Inflation has caused a lot of heartache. Savings are down. You know, people are borrowing like crazy. Consumer credits through the roof. It's record after record, 20 billion a month after 20 billion a month. We never saw that twice in a row. Now we got like seven out of the last nine months or something like that. And at the highest cost of money that we've seen since 1980, you're borrowing, people are borrowing like crazy to pay the bills at 20% on credit cards. It's not sustainable. So I think when the turn comes, it could be interesting when you kind of pull back the curtain on the economy. And that's when the stock market reacts negatively. Yeah. But I think the Fed wants to wait to see some of that first before they feel comfortable taking their foot off the brake. And that's a that's kind of a problem. It's a conundrum almost for the market. It is. And and we felt like we were getting there a couple of times. And then, as yeah. you mentioned, you know, then we see that turn and and we see financial conditions loosen a little bit. So what do you do? What do you do in this environment if you're looking at bonds? Are are you sitting in cash? Do people do you want to stay super short duration? How do you approach this kind of scenario? You approach it like fixed income has become income again for the time being. So, you know, I don't. I don't look at bonds as a trade right now, or you know, if you wanted to invest some money into bonds, I don't have a problem with that. I just think you know, inflation will eat it up over the long haul anyway. I think this is a turn in a 40-year trend, lower lows in inflation, lower lows in interest rates, and you hit the denouement point where it kind of doesn't almost matter how much money you print, because exponentially you have to keep printing more every time, and you've gotten to the point where you have angles of ascent of balance sheets, and even the stock market when they print money are straight up and down. Almost like geometrically, this can't continue in that vein. So I think there are problems in that sense going forward where I don't necessarily want to own bonds. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am one of those who feels like you've shifted to a point where even stocks could, you know, come down, then rally big, you know, suck everyone back in when the Fed kind of changes the narrative. 
and then just go sideways because where's the growth, right? You don't need the growth just to pay down the debt too. Let's not forget that. That's a big problem coming out of this, right? Is the growth going to be good enough to, to you know, handle the debt that we have created here? So there's a lot of question marks there. And I think that you know, those will ultimately be answered. I think this is a time to be nimble where you can be in and out of things. I think you need currency exposure. I think you need exposure to commodities. I think it's a broader type of investment or you know, uh, dynamic now uh, environment where you have to take advantage of other things just in looking for the ultimate place to buy stocks because it may not turn out to be that great a buying opportunity. Yeah, Greg, you brought, you pretty much just described a series that we've just launched this week, which are looking at some of these big, like major time bombs and threats that we all worry about, and then how to be nimble and maybe navigate and find some solutions around that. So we're with you. Uh, we feel that. We're going to hear from somebody in that series in just a moment. want to ask you about something. Um, one of the things that uh, when, when you sent some notes over, there was TBT. Um, what wh are you looking at that, and and what is that? Is that something you see as a way to play this? Because that doesn't come up as often. No, it doesn't. I mean, you know, I when I when there were first the ETFs were first introduced, I was really excited, and then when the short ETFs came out, I was really excited because I could take the CTA approach that I have and transfer it to people that trade equity. Problem is, they don't track well. There's all kinds of issues with dividends and tax treatments, and everyone's different. And oh my God, liquidity. So. From the point of the TBT, I don't, I'm away from it now. I mean, that's something that could have been used in 2021, beginning when, I mean, honestly, when the Fed funds forwards were at 80 basis points and the two-year note was still at 20 basis points. One of the greatest tells ever. I mean, that was unbelievable opportunity. So in that case, some of the short bond ETFs worked. One of the things I've looked at is the TLT, which is the 10-year treasury, you know, the long side of that trade against the S&P. And the S&P is almost like it's, it's hanging around a new record high against bonds, too. What if you start, suddenly get this rally in bonds that kind of sucks money out of stocks? And that, so that might be another way we could see the pain start to develop in kind of a disinflationary environment if we ever get there. So is the soft landing scenario off the table? I think so. I mean, and I, you know, I only say it in the sense of the probabilities. Mm -hmm. And I've done a lot of work on this, all right? And I've called it, you know, since spring has sprung and spring training is all around the place. I can ride my bike to three different parks down here. It's great. Uh, I'll Benefits take of Florida. <laughs> yes, three strikes and you're out is the piece I did recently, right? And it actually goes back because this is, you know, a little bit, a couple months old, the theme, because it's existed for a couple months. And this is, you get these three things happening at the same time, it's been a 100% chance of recession. Number one is food at home on CPI above 6% year over year. Not to 13, still double digits, all right? So it's way over that. The second one is the real curve inverted, two, uh, 30 or two year. Most inverted since the 80s, and it's been that way for a while. So all of a sudden, kind of making pop media headlines, and it's been that way for a while. If you look at the bell bar, the bell, uh, you know, the, some of the different ways of looking at the yield curve. And, then, and third is the US dollar up 20% over a 52 week period. You had that in May and in August. And even more than that, it's almost like, you know, you're called out. It's a called third strike in the sense that 30% up in the dollar versus gold is like the kicker. Those four things, you don't avoid a recession and haven't in the past. So that sets up for recession 12 to 18 months from a couple months ago. Then I would say all the focus here is on the U.S. and the Fed. And like the Fed can just ride the white horse in here and kind of save the U.S. economy. When we look at other places in the world where food inflation is 35%, where the currency's down by half in terms of purchasing power, wow, 
those places are really choking. And I feel that you have a situation where it's more of a global recession threat than just the U.S. And beyond that, of course, the geopolitical risk, it's spring. You know, we know history. If something's going to kind of pop off here, this is kind of the time frame, too. And the last thing the Fed needs is something happening where energy prices spike and remove that base effect that could have been driving inflation down the next two or three months. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. Oh, my goodness. And that's a fantastic summary of the stuff keeping us all up at night. Um, I, I feel like I, I feel like you you were uh, have been participating in our series. I mean, this is exactly what we were talking about is all the risks out there. And I just finished taping with Peter Zion um, uh, earlier today, too. So we're going to have a lot to say about the geopolitical risks out there. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, it's interesting because timing all this has been so difficult. Raul just, Raul set the scene in our series uh, the first day. And today, Roger has an interview out with Dario Perkins releasing where he's talking about some of these fundamental changes. And you touched on a couple but fundamental changes that we need to recognize. Let's have a listen to that clip. Yeah, I mean, there's been a huge amount of noise. So we've been living in this sort of artificial fake business cycle. You know, for the last three years, investors have, you know, keep sending me emails saying, where are we in the cycle? And I keep saying to them, you know, this ain't a business cycle. You know, this is, this is just not a normal cycle. It was driven by lockdowns and then sort of big rotations in the way people were spending in behavior. None of this was a normal economic cycle. And then just as so we were emerging from that, we had the war with, with Ukraine. In, in Ukraine. So, um, you know, it's caused these massive distortions in the economy. It pushed inflation to very, very high levels. I don't think anyone is talking about sort of persistent inflation at sort of 8, 10, 12%. Uh, so all of that stuff is going to unwind. But I think that when you look through that, you're going to say, well, what's fundamentally changed over the last three years? So I think one is that we have, um, you know, massive labor shortages that we didn't have before. Those naturally tilt the balance of power back towards labor. And we see that very clearly with wage trends, you know, and particularly in some sectors where older workers have dropped out of the labor force, getting these big increases in, in wages. The second one is is globalization. You know, already we were beginning to see this sort of fragmentation of global supply chains. That's really been accelerated. You know, firstly, you have this sort of private incentive to do that because these supply chains have proved to be incredibly vulnerable, uh, you know, when, when stressed. And then you've had these big geopolitical shifts that sort of accelerated after Ukraine. So you have this move towards friendshoring and reshoring and a completely different role for governments in the economy. And so all of this sort of tilts the balance of power back towards uh, towards labor again. That full interview, along with the series, is on our website. So just scan the QR code to access. You know, uh, 
Greg, when we're looking at this, and I'm I'm always really interested in this deglo. We've been throwing that term around the deglobalization, the supply supply chain situations. Um, Peter and I talked a lot about that. I think it's going to come up a lot, especially this first week when we're we're talking about the the challenges and these big looming threats uh, to our future. But when we're looking at this situation, um, do are, are you expecting inflation to remain elevated? Are you in that camp? Yeah, I mean, yes. I think that you will see inflation ebb and flow. You will see inflation come down. At some point, it will come down hard. It's a mathematical inevitability. But I think the, the main point to be made here is you have reversed the 40-year trend. Mm-hmm. Down in interest rates, down in inflation. It is now higher highs and higher lows. So, yeah, it'll come down, and it'll base somewhere at a higher level. Um, it's interesting to look at something like Japanese CPI. Interesting to look at because all of a sudden, this had taken off, you know, in the index itself. And it's gotten to a point where it's actually really moved higher as an index, not necessarily year over year, and only got to a high of like four and a half. But when the index is really moving, and then you look at what a correction is going to be, and you see for that thing to come down like a 50% correction of the move already, you're talking about a pretty significant near-term deflation. So you could have deflation periods within the context of a secular trend higher in inflation overall. And I absolutely believe that if for no other reason than the next recession, the next downturn in the economy, which you know is you know, lurking out there, uh, they're going to do the same thing, which is debase the purchasing power of money. Print more money. And this is what you have. And I mean, this is why this has changed, all right? You've gotten away with it for so long into QE in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11 through 2013, when they finally did, you know, uh, tap out and then paper, did paper tap out and then shrink it. Yeah. So, Again, it's just bring more money, the same reaction, you know, the base of the purchasing power of people's money. And that's why it's going to be more difficult to keep up. And I just think buying stocks and holding stocks, hey, the Argentinian Merval makes new highs every year. It doesn't mean the standard of living in Argentina is going like that. You know, and this is what we're hearing over and over again is it's not what it was before. There's some uncertainty about what it is and what it's turning into, but but everyone is saying what worked before will not work. There seems to be a lot of agreement among the people who come on Real Vision that that's the case, which makes it a really tricky environment. Want to pull it back a little, a little sort of closer to the here and now. Um, and we talked about the Fed. Let's talk about the ECB. You had some, and and Brian will put in the chat for everyone where to find all Greg's stuff. Some fantastic. Uh, stats and charts, just really digging into the inflation situation. And you seem concerned that the ECB is really behind the curve. No, they are. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, you have you have some pullback in inflation numbers, all right? I mean, Italy, for example, you, know, you come down, it's like, wow, we came down to like 9%. Wow. And it's still minus 600 basis points for a real policy rate in Italy and in other places, like on Eastern Europe, where Latvia, Lithuania, some of these countries I talk about that no one really cares about, but I'm telling you, they lead the way. Their data is first, up and down. So that's why I watch it. And it doesn't bode well. And even in a place like, you know, you had, uh, you know, Italian inflation came down, which was great, but the core rate rose to 6.4 from 6%. It was a new high. So the other problem with that is you have some base effect that, you know, is coming. It's been muted by the recent rally in energy and could be muted further, but that's been offset by food. Food inflation is sticky. When you look at the CPI in the U.S., it's 139, I think. I usually break them down one by one. 139 different components of food inflation. 
All right. So getting a seasonal effect on that, getting a base effect on that is very difficult because there are so many different things. And I think that this is something where you talk about supply chains, where you talk about the stickiness of inflation, you talk about incrementally higher cost every step of the way. Uh, food inflation is here to stay, and that's a problem for central banks. And, you know, again, so, I mean, the ECB is very far behind the curve. You also have money supply shrinking. M1 is now deflating. You see kind of the same thing in the U.S. Money is shrinking at a time when the cost of everything is still going up. So, you know, this is a problem longer term in terms of the economy. And the further behind they are in the curve, the more problem it is in the economy when, you know, when their inflation does come down, assuming, that, you know, it comes down and stays down for any length of time, which is not a certain. Yeah, I I, I want to, uh, we have a chart, I'm going to tackle two things here. We have a chart of DBA. So this has been interesting because this sense of food inflation and a lot of people were anticipating, they were trading in DBA with, with the idea of this scarcity of supply and you saw prices come off, but now obviously we're, we had that big drop and now we're kind of bouncing around here. Uh, does the fact that there's food inflation and food supply and scarcity. Does that mean you should be investing in food commodities, though, or would you be worried about that? Is that is there not that translation? I like the sector a lot, first of all, and we caught the first wave up in the DBA. I mean, with the DBA, you have to understand the components, and then you have to understand how individual these commodities are. I mean, soybeans have nothing to do with sugar, so you're not necessarily talking about correlated assets in this, you know, in this ETF. I prefer. This is why I love the individual. Uh, ETFs like cane for sugar is a good one, or SOYB for soybeans. There's a whole host of them, right? That's the stuff that we put out every day. How to how to be active in these markets, and I think you're still you're in a situation where the margin of error is a bullish outcome. All right, we've had some actually negative news, especially even in the soybean crop, where you've had big crops in South America. Brazil is going to produce a record crop. They just revised it too. And it was like an 18% one month revision. It's really kind of nuts. And they're going to be exporting a lot. So it's going to be competitive for the US and I tell you. Soybeans came down because when you look at the balance sheet at a price like this, given all the money they printed, given the price action, given the technicals, you throw all this stuff in. And it's like soybeans are kind of fairly priced here in an environment that's not necessarily bullish. Well, if it gets bullish, you have no margin for error in these things. That's for me the problem. Not so much they're all bullish right here. Some of them are. Sugar really is. A couple of them are. Not all of them are. But the margin, look at orange juice, for example. I mean, this is something I've been talking about for two years just because it's here in Florida and I've seen the decline in the citrus crop. And all of a sudden, it's like one day it turns into news where everyone's shocked that the orange crop's down 30%. Where's Beaks? What happened to Beaks? You know, and it's a shocking move in orange juice since, you know, $2.80 a gallon. So I think you're going to see more of those incidents in the food commodities. I think they're worth playing. Sometimes it's tough with the DBA because it's, it's a little bit mixed. Yeah, and that's a great point. And, and that's with every ETF that you're looking at, you really need to understand the underlying in that uh, before you make a decision whether you're better to go individual. So it's always great to bring that up. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
would you be investing in Europe, given the fact that the ECB is so behind and some of these inflation reads that you're talking about and some of the trouble? Because a lot of people at the beginning of the year were like, oh, you know, now there are alternatives outside the U.S. and Europe's been dead forever. It looks pretty good. And even European banks, right? I mean, European banks didn't look so bad there first either. Um, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, technically, these markets are really good. And if you take some of the ones that have underperformed and haven't made new highs like the DAX has, or, you know, specifically Italy and Spain, you know, the IBEX and the MIB, um, technically, they look like they're breaking out on a long-term basis and have some catch-up to do, and they don't look so bad. I can't find the fundamental justification for that, Paul. I just can't. You know, it's more of a relative play for me because it just scares me. Um, but technically, it looks good. Fundamentally, I just wouldn't want to go anywhere near it. I mean, let's not forget, we're talking about countries with huge debt. You know, Belgium, for example. I mean, you know, Belgian inflation has come down. Uh, and, you know, their interest rate relative to the ECB, you know, the ECB's policy rate, is actually on about minus 300. All right. If they're in a recession, that's a perfectly acceptable level. But bond yields are breaking out despite the fact the economy is rolling over because it has to stick with Germany. It has to stick with Italy. It has to stick with everybody. So it's one of those cases where Belgium, on a per capita basis, almost as bad as Italy in terms of debt. So you can't forget the sovereign debt issue, which I think could be an implosion anytime. And you talk about, you know, you said it perfectly. I use the phrase all the time. There are so many landmines out there thinking we're going to cross the field without stepping on one is kind of almost terrifying. And uh, yeah, the European markets don't look bad. I don't see the fundamental justification and the risk scares the hell out of me. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And that's a difference. So know your time perspective, because if you're going to be super nimble and you're somebody who is more technically driven, that's where we've been getting a lot of the comments, I think, on the price action alone. But, you know, you need a full framework, <laughs> I think, if you're yeah. if you're going to look at that and really understand your risk. It's just better places to put your money at work. You know, some of these commodities, some of these currencies, you know, I mean, some of these currencies are going to look really good when the Fed does turn and the dollar comes off. And the dollar's come off a lot already. If you look at the dollar relative to gold against the Fed funds, you take that as a, mon- a measure of monetary conditions, it's basically saying the Fed funds rates are closer to two and a half right now, you know, in terms of monetary conditions have loosened because the dollars come off. So I think that currency market, commodities markets have a lot of great opportunities. I don't need to bang my head against the wall with European stock in there. Is there is there a currency that you like here? Because there's also a lot in play here, isn't it? We got the BOJ coming up. We have a lot of a lot of stuff on the radar. BOJ long later in the spring, but also some stuff happening Friday. Yeah. Uh, is there a particular currency that you like? I'm writing right now about the BOJ for tomorrow's live, actually, with their inflation numbers and their, their employment numbers. I actually have liked and continue to like the Mexican peso. Yeah. And then I start to want to look at some of these kind of offhand current, uh, commodity currencies, like the Brazilian real. So those are two that have caught my eye. And uh, we're, we're in both right now, and so far, so good. So we'll see how that plays out. And that's a period where the dollar has either been sideways or up in terms of the dollar index. So that's pretty phenomenal relative performance. And in in is is that is this sort of tied to your bullish view on commodities? Yeah. Do they go hand in hand, the c- currencies yeah. and commodities? Absolutely. But you also have to see that currencies like the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar have done poorly. I mean, they had a couple of false breakouts. I mean, it was like a bull trap and you know got whacked and they look more like they're gonna break down. And that's also it's Every, we were talking about this before. Everything polarized. I mean, you can have the commodity currencies like the Mexican peso and the Brazilian real and the South African rand even that go up. You can have other commodity currencies that go down because they may be more susceptible to the recession side, the demand side. Some of the commodities can weather that, like copper, just because there isn't enough copper around. Some of those commodities can't. 
So we'll see how this happens. And you could have a situation too, where you have kind of commodities coming down on a recession view, but oil going up on a geopolitical dynamic. Now, wouldn't that put a you know throw a monkey wrench into the Fed's uh, machine? Yeah, no, you're ex- you're exactly right, exactly right. And when you're talking about currencies, I'm always reminded of Weston Nakamura. Who's always when you ask about the dollar, he's like, "What cross? Like it's not a basket. Like what? You can't do- you can't think about it like that." And and sort of hammered that into us. Um, we've got a couple of questions. I want to get to them a little bit all over the place. So if you're looking at this particular area, great. If you're not, just punt it back to me, and we'll move right. on. Um, Trillionex asking, can the yield curve steepen by the long end rising? Um, it, it could. I mean, you know, you also have one of these things in the U.S. that people tend to forget that is, you know, omnipresent, which is public borrowing and deficits and debt. You know, 30, 30 plus trillion and running. Uh, you two trillion public borrowing a year as if it's nothing now. I mean, the numbers, people have become so immune to these numbers. They don't really fully understand the size. What I think is going to be needed next in terms of how much money you got to print next time. So exponentially more, you know, four trillion the first time, eight trillion this time. It's going to be twelve to fifteen trillion. Will the political will or the stomach be there to do that? I don't know. But uh, in in terms of uh, the, what was the question again? Yeah, he said, w- w- could the yield curve steepen by the yes, long end yeah, rising? It could. I mean, if you know, the Fed could lose control of the bond market. Any of these yeah. central banks could. We've already seen episodes in the UK and Japan where. No, they're it's tenuous, all right. And with the debt and with the spending, and look at tax revenue. If these if the labor market's so strong and everything's so great, why is tax revenue, individual tax receipts down nine percent year over year? I mean, that's pretty interesting to me. So you start to talk about things like that and the deficits, and yes, absolutely, I could see a case where the yield curve could see with yields going up at the long end, and maybe even yields coming down. Let's put a case where if the Fed turns too early. And they're, you know, they're going to now uh, really deal with the economy, the recession. You got jobs now being deflated, right? So the Fed turns, yet inflation is still four and a half, five percent. The bond deals aren't going to like that. You can see the curve steepen that way too. Yeah, losing control of the bond market is a really interesting, you know, a really interesting thought. And I, I'm going to guess that Trillinex is having, thinking about the BOJ when he's asking that question. Uh, Colin asking, is the best solution for a real slowdown in China to bring global demand down rather than using rates? Well, I mean, question. that's a really good and loaded question. We could talk for a half hour on that alone. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, you know my view on China, which I'm sometimes reluctant to discuss because it's kind of almost too sinister if you want to think about it, right? I mean, you're talking about now the U.S. kind of warned China not to give weapons to the Russians. Like, hello, McFly. I mean, do we not remember the Olympics? Do you remember Putin and Xi sitting down and a 30 trillion renminbi new deal for a new pipeline from Siberia for crude oil, and they're going to engage Kazakhstan to ship natural gas to China? All that money is lent by Chinese state banks in renminbi. The crude oil will be priced based on the Dubai Price and the Shanghai Futures Exchange denominated in renminbi. You know, when the Chinese uh, Communist plenary session just ended, G came out and he said the number one thing, the Communist Party, food security. Why do you think Russia's in the Ukraine? All right. This is about shipping food to China. You got ports, you got food. This is a t- this is a tag team. You throw OPEC into the mix after Biden dis, you know, the younger faction of the House of Saud, and you know, they're the people that run Saudi Aramco and they shifted barrels to to China from the U.S. in the very first month that Biden was president. You know, don't think that OPEC and Saudi Arabia are necessarily on our side here either. All right. More deals going on with China there as well, even to the degree that they kind of have Iran and Saudi Arabia talking at some level, too. I mean, that's that's a 
you know, an accomplishment unto itself. Yeah. I don't think that they're not going to make a move on Taiwan either. And that's when, you know, the U.S. gets involved. They threaten to drop the, you know, the dollar petroleum card currency and the U.S. backs off. You're right. We're going to we're going to have to take that whole answer and we're going to have to have another conversation about that because there's a, there's a lot in there. We we're, we're some of them are coming up in my conversation, you know, some of those threads we touched on in my conversation with Peter. That's going to be out Thursday, guys. Um we are out of time. I got to ask this one question though. Because it's so funny. I haven't heard anyone talk about this. Joseph, thank you for that. Would you put tobacco, would tobacco stocks be part of your commodity thesis? I haven't had anyone ask about tobacco uh, stocks in like I can't even remember. Thank you Joseph for that. I don't know any of the statistics on tobacco growing. None. Yeah. Because okay. there's no futures market. So, you know, I can't yeah. really Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's such a, such no an idea. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody is going to be watching that, Joseph. We'll, we'll, we'll find out if they are. Somebody um, knows. You know, clearly. Somebody knows. Right. There's some, there's some, uh, you know what? We, the, that we'll uh, take that up on one of our other shows because that's a really interesting one. So there are fantastic questions. I'm going to squeeze one more in. Best way to invest in commodities, ETFs? Well, question I mean, mark. I think Richard well, came ETFs. in a little late to this conversation, but not no, well, not yeah, I think, I think, I think right? ETFs. But I have to say, I mean, I think, and I don't say this because I am one. You know, Series Three registered my trading advisor. People that do what I do are going to go up in value. I mean, they did in the '70s. It's a very similar situation. We can be long or short bonds. That's going to be huge. We can be long or short stock indexes. Any country it's going to be huge. Be long or short any currency. Gonna be huge. We can get the industrial metals, the, the precious metals, all the energy, uh, and all the eggs in it. When we can be nimble, we can be quick. It's liquid, you know. It's cash turnaround. You know, the problem with futures is that people don't understand how much money you need to actually trade them. Right? Yeah. Very undercapitalized is the biggest problem for most people that trade it themselves, because a gold contract at two thousand dollars, one gold contract's worth two hundred grand. So you can't trade it putting up fifty grand anymore in the futures market. You kind of need a professional who. You know, and has a track record and has been doing it for a long time. Anyone, honestly, and I'm kind of selling myself, but not to sell myself because mm. I'm positioned to do this because I've seen these ups and downs in inflation. I came into the business on the trading floor of the Commise Exchange in the World Trade Center in 1983. And yeah. I got out of gold because I saw it was a dying breed and I started trading currencies for Lima Brothers. So yeah. I've been doing this a long time. And people that do what we do and can be flexible and take advantage of all these opportunities, which are going to be phenomenal. A lot of bad things are going to happen, but the opportunities that come of it are going to be outstanding and kind of some wealth creation opportunities, just like in the 70s. Yeah. And that's a great way to end it because I think that's true. And, and what that is what we keep hearing from people. You have to be nimble. You have to think differently. There's going to be dispersion. There's going to be volatility. It's not just sort of, you know, uh, take your pick and sort of walk away and set and forget. It, we're not in that environment anymore. Greg, this is- dead, We can declare it officially dead. <laughs> That's right. This went by like that. There's so there's so much good stuff we we're talking about and so many great questions, um, but we'll have you back again soon. It's right. always well, great to see you. People can email me the questions, find us on the website, so I'm happy to answer. That's awesome. And, um, and uh, Brian dropped some information in the chats on where you can find Greg um, for any follow-up or any further discussion, which is fantastic. Uh, we'll be back same time tomorrow with Doomberg. And don't forget to check our special series about how to navigate the massive risks out there. Here's a little bit more on how you can unfuck your future. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets that we can't afford 
as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really f your future in 20 or 30 years' time. But we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.